Well, next Sunday, our plan is to get back into our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I would encourage you, if you have some time this week, to, to spend it in Luke chapter 15, reading over the parable of the prodigal son. Pastor Nick Rogers will be preaching for us back in Luke. However, this morning, I want to take a brief detour, and I want us to consider what motivates our obedience, or to put it another way, what fuels our walk with the Lord? Like, what motivates you to obey the Lord? Is it the warnings of Scripture? Don't do this or else. Is it the love that you have for the Lord, given all that he's done for you? I, I love him for all that he has done for me, and therefore, I obey the Lord. Or maybe it's the hope of a reward one day in heaven. I, I know that there are rewards to come, therefore, I want on that day to receive those rewards, therefore, I want to walk in obedience and faithfulness now. All of those are admirable reasons to obey the Lord, to walk with the Lord, to follow the Lord. But my question this morning is, what motivates you to obey the Lord? Now, that's an important question because our motives are revealing. Our motives reveal why we do the things we do. Our motives reveal what we treasure. Our motives oftentimes show our fears and our priorities in our dreams. And so if I was to kind of distill down this morning's message for us into one goal, it would be that in our time together in God's word, that his Holy Spirit would help us to both see and to celebrate the lasting joy that comes from a relationship with God. To both see with our eyes and intellectually to see, to grasp with our minds, but also not just to see, not just to grasp, but also to celebrate, to rejoice in, to savor the lasting joy that comes from living in a relationship with God. So my goal this morning is that the Holy Spirit would affect our hearts through the word of God this morning to the point at which our obedience to the Lord is fueled by our joy in the Lord. And that we would desire then to honor God and love God and serve God and obey God, but all of that rooted in our joy because we have been united to God through the work of Jesus Christ. So joy is going to be something we look at a lot. Now, this concept of joy fueling our relationship with God and our obedience to God may be a new concept to you this morning, perhaps. Like your reasons for walking with the Lord and living in obedience to the Lord might be more that you are fueled by the warnings in Scripture. It could be fear. In fact, sometimes, tragically, over the course of the last 2,000 years, the church's evangelism strategies have been rooted entirely in fear, in warning. Like, you, you don't want to go to hell, therefore, trust God. And while that's true, it is a really poor motivation 
for trusting in Jesus Christ and delighting in him and obeying in him and walking in him. Others of you, maybe your love for the Lord is just rooted in simply all that he has done for you, which again is, is not wrong. It's, it's a good motivation that we would be walking in obedience with the Lord because of all that God has done for us. But what I want to offer to you this morning, that there is a superior motivation to warnings or simply to repayment, and that is joy. And I want us to see from Psalm 4 that joy is really the God-designed fuel for our worship of God and our delight in God and our walking with God. God, specifically Psalm chapter 4, verse 7. So as you're looking at this text, Psalm chapter 4, what we see here in this psalm is that David is kind of not only teaching, but he's also heralding, and there's a difference. Like to teach is just to transmit information from one person to another. David is doing that, but he's also heralding. He's announcing, he's celebrating the fact that there is a superior satisfaction and there is a deeper joy in knowing and walking with God than the joy and the satisfaction that can be found anywhere else. That all the temptations and the aspirations of a fallen world are like junk food in comparison to the deep-rooted, robust, lasting joy that comes with union with Jesus Christ. And so follow along as I read Psalm chapter 4. I'm reading it again, not because Kate didn't do a fantastic job reading it, but because repetition is good for us. And I want us to hear this again, and because it's short. This was like 12 pages. We wouldn't, I wouldn't reread this. Psalm chapter 4. The word of the Lord says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But I know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. So this psalm, like so many, was written by David. Most scholars believe that David wrote this psalm as he was being hunted down. In fact, Psalm 4 is really a follow-on of Psalm 3. 
Psalm 3 is really a morning meditation. It's a morning prayer, and Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. They're, they're kind of designed to be connected together. And in Psalm 3, David prays, as he does really in Psalm 4, that God would save him from his enemies. What's important for us to note right from the start of Psalm 4 is David's robust faith in God. We see that right from the beginning, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Again, verse 3, but I know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. It's good for us to note here that David's problems have not gone away. He is still praying that God will answer him in the midst of his crisis, likely as he's being hunted down, likely by King Saul to be destroyed. And in the midst of all of that, David prays this prayer. And David chooses to focus on the God who saves, which is significant and important. But what what I want to zoom in on this morning is to kind of look through the fact that David focuses on the God who saves. And I want to, to look at what happens to David or what the response is as David focuses on the God who saves. Because sometimes in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardship, someone will say to us, what you need to do is you need to think about God. You need to think about his goodness. You need to think about his character. You need to think about his promises. And all of those are true. And all of those are fantastic things to focus on. But what's equally true and what's equally fantastic is what happens to the believer as we meditate on the promises of God, as we meditate on the character of God, as we meditate on the history of God's work in salvation, both globally and in our own hearts. And that's what David draws us to specifically here in verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So what I want to do as we focus on just that one verse, is I want to ask one big question and then follow up with three applications. Here's the big question. What is the joy that David is referring to? Like, I hope as you read scripture in the morning, maybe with your pajamas on or maybe as you've gotten dressed or maybe at night before you go to bed and you've got a cup of coffee in your hand and you're reading scripture, I hope from time to time you stop and ask questions like that. Okay, David, you have put more joy in my heart, you say to the Lord, than they have when their grain and wine abound. What, what is that joy? Is it just feeling happy? Is it just a giddiness? Like, tend to think that that's probably not what that is as David's being hunted down, but what is the nature of this joy? And are there any clues in the text that help us understand what David means by this joy or answer this question? If we were to back up to Psalm chapter 3, as I said, these, these two psalms are woven together. We can see David acknowledging in chapter 3, verse 3, that God is a shield and an encourager and a restorer. But you, O Lord, David says, or O Yahweh, are a shield about me, the glory and the lifter of my head. 
Chapter 3, verse 4, God answers the cries of his people. David prays, I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. In chapter 3, verse 5, God is a protector and a sustainer of life. He says, I lay down and slept, and I awoke again, for Yahweh sustained me. In verse 7, God saves and he avenges. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the, t- on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, God gives grace and he hears our prayers. In chapter 4, verse 3, God calls out his people to be his own and he hears them. And then, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 4, David almost begs us as the reader to think about and reflect and meditate on the character and the attributes of God. He says, ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. We are to ponder the character, the attributes, the goodness, the promises, the grace of God. So if we were to group kind of all of what David is saying in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 together, because all of it seems to be connected to David's joy, it's it's kind of the foundation for David's joy, How would we connect all of this? How would we pull all of this together? And I think David does that for us already in verse 6 of Psalm 4. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. There are many who say, many people who are looking for something good, looking for the good life, both in David's day and in ours, looking for something that sustains, something that satisfies, something that gives hope and joy, something that gives meaning to life. And we see that all around us, and we do the same, don't we? I mean, we're not, all of humanity does that. All of humanity is in a, a pursuit of joy and satisfaction and pleasure in life. Some look for it, David says, in wine, and some in pleasure, and some in fun. Some look for it in a bumper crop, or a good return on their investment, or in professional academic accolades. What does David say to this? He says, there are many people who look in many different places for satisfaction, for something good. And David's response to this David's answer to this is, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. David's argument could go something like this. There are lots of tributaries that promise joy, but only the attentive, watchful care of the Father and the radiance of his grace upon us truly deliver lasting joy. Lots of people looking for joy in lots of places. Lots of people looking for love in lots of places. Lots of people looking for satisfaction in lots of places. He says the answer, the real answer for the good life, according to verse 6, is the light of the radiance of God's face upon us. It's God's attentive, watchful care, the radiance of his grace upon us as his children, That and only that truly delivers lasting joy. I love the way 19th century British pastor Charles Spurgeon wrote about this when he said, it is better to feel God's favor 
or the light of God's face upon us, we could say, one hour in our repenting souls than to sit whole ages under the warmest sunshine that this world affords. So to answer the question, what is the joy that David refers to in verse 7, we could say it is the attention and the presence of God from verse 6. Or it is the favor of God upon us in verse 6. You've probably seen little, little children, maybe it's happened to you when you're holding them and you're not really maybe paying quite attention to them or you're kind of listening but you're talking to someone else or watching something else or reading something else and then, then they will take both of their little hands and put them on either side of your face and turn you to face towards them. And that's the imagery here, that God's face, not because we have to We have to manipulate the face of God, but out of God's own sovereign will has chosen to shine the delight of his face, the radiance of his glory and grace upon his children. I don't know if you've thought about that recently, but the disposition of the creator and the almighty God towards his children is one of a smiling father towards his children that he loves. And maybe you had a father that modeled this, who smiled at you, who when he looked at you, you felt his approval and his love and his grace. But maybe you didn't. Maybe you had a distracted father or an angry father or a disapproving father or an absent father. But friends, David clearly attaches the, the, the radiance and the joy, and, or the radiance and the glory and the grace of God as it extends to us through the gaze of God upon his children. He, he says that that is the, the root of Christian joy, to know that we are loved by God, to know that we belong to him, to know that he approves of us through the work of Jesus Christ even with our imperfections, even with our shortcomings, even with our sin. So Christian, our joy comes from knowing that we have been chosen and adopted and set apart for God. Our joy comes from knowing that God's face is turned towards us, from knowing that he hears us when we pray, that he knows our needs before we ask him. This is why Israel, for generation after generation after generation, would pray this very thing to one another. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his, what? Face shine upon you. The Lord smile at you. (laughs) The Lord lift up his countenance upon you to gaze upon you and give you peace. Like we sing a lot and think a lot about turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How often do we think about the last part of that song? Not only our eyes being turned towards Jesus, but the face of God Almighty shining upon us. Lift up. The light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is the same thing that David would essentially say in Psalm 16, verse 11, 
when he writes, you, O God, make known to me the path of life, which is God. God is the path of life. In your presence or under your smiling gaze, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there is pleasure forevermore. So what is this joy? It is the knowledge of the presence of God with us. And since our joy is then supernaturally powered by God himself and by his loving grace, we have joy because we know he loves us and he cares for us and he sees us and he hears us. Even maybe perhaps when we feel that no one else does. Now, all of that is true, but all of that is a little bit on the heady side, right? It's up here. So what I want to do is I want to ask three application questions to try to help sink that into our hearts so that we would not only see, but we would delight in this truth. That we would not only see it, but we would also savor it. First, how do we get this kind of joy? How do we get this kind of joy that is impervious to the external pressures of life and the ups and downs of relationships and the uncertainty of the future and our insecurities and our fears, and we go on and on. How do we get this kind of joy? And again, Psalm 4, verse 7, answers that question for us in the first three words in our English translations. You have put. The you there is Yahweh. It's God himself. David says, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain or wine abound. Which means, friends, that joy is not something we work up through the power of positive thinking. You just need to kind of rev up the positive thinking and then maybe joy will kind of flow in behind it. No. But that's sometimes what we do, don't we? But joy is not the absence of suffering. It is the knowledge of God's pleasure towards us as his children. Like to have joy does not mean we have to try to drain our life of difficulty or uncertainty or pain. Like having all of our plans in order and all of our relationships in good standing is not a prerequisite for joy. Like let me just go home, okay, today, take the next week, try to get all my affairs in order, all my relationships in order, try to eliminate all the pain from my life, all the uncertainty of my life, map out my future, and then maybe the gates of joy will swing wide open and I can have this kind of joy. But that's not what David is teaching us. It's not what the Lord through David is teaching us. And here's why. Because even if we could, for a split second, drain our life of pain and see all of our hopes fulfilled, we would find that at best we have a brief nanosecond of happiness before we began to worry about how we could keep up this sort of utopian moment. Trying to get sustainable joy from our circumstances will not happen. And isn't this what King Solomon learned, right? I mean, just read Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and you see Solomon systematically searching for meaning and joy and power and in knowledge and in wealth and in sex and in pleasure and in respect and so on and on and on and on. And yet, where did it all lead? 
Like listen to his words when he comes to the end of his search for meaning and joy. He says, Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So to answer the question, how do we get joy? It comes as a gift from God. God is the fountain of true and lasting joy. How do we get that? Well, it comes from God, but it comes from abiding in Christ. It comes from walking in union with God. In fact, in the very famous passage of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 15, when he teaches on abiding in him, that he is the true vine, he says, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you don't even have life. So abide in me, remain in me, live in me. What's interesting is at the end of all of that, which sounds a lot like what we ought to, what we ought to uh, strive for, Jesus ends all of that and wraps all of that up with kind of the thesis statement behind all of that. In John 15, 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you, and that these things are the abiding in him, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Friends, let no one ever teach you or fool you that the Christian life is a life of simply duty and obligation or alignment with some sort of theological eternal proposition of truth. It is about alignment to the truth, but it's ultimately about delight. It's about joy. The joy of abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of joy that comes in his presence, whether or not we experience trials. Because they will come and go. Whether or not we experience suffering, because suffering will come and it will go. Or sometimes it will come and it will not go in this life. And yet even then, The promise for those who abide in Christ is that Christ's joy might be in us because, as David would say, you have put more joy. So it's a godly joy that comes to us and that our joy in Christ might be full. Jesus would say a little bit earlier in the same section in John chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so abide in my Love. All of this shows us that that to know that we are loved by God, not on the basis of our performance, means that we can rest in him. If you're here this morning and you are a brand new Christian, you are no less loved by God as the one perhaps sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you that has walked with the Lord for 65 years. And to know the love of God, to know the love of God, how 
how measureless, right, we could sing the old hymn, means that we can rest in him. And this rest is the root of our joy. Or to put it another way, the root of Christian joy is the love of God, to know the love of God, to be loved by the Almighty. In fact, this is the truth that we declare when we sing blessed assurance, which is what we all want, isn't it? We want assurance that we belong to Jesus Christ. What is the blessed assurance? Jesus is mine. He loves me. Oh, what a foretaste. What an appetizer of glory divine yet to come. Watching and waiting and looking above. Filled with his goodness and lost in his love. Brother and sister in Christ this morning, that, that is your story. That is your song, praising your Savior all the day long. You have been known and loved and redeemed and justified and adopted and one day will be glorified even as you are now being sanctified. And all of that is the work of a loving God who loves his own. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the love of God. You aren't trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, I, I would call you to consider the God who created the cosmos. The God who provided a way back to himself even when our sin and rebellion rightly deserves the death, our own death, and rightly merits the wrath of God. Friend, I would call you to consider, if that's you this morning, the God who sent his son to be the perfection that God requires of us, to die the death that was required of us because of our sin, to consider the God who raised his son back to life, demonstrating that sin is fully atoned for through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that God's power overwhelms the grave. I would call you to consider The God who calls to all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. And he gives rest. He gives cleansing of sin through his precious blood, as we will remember here in just a few moments through the Lord's Supper. So we have seen that the root of joy is the love of God and we have seen that this joy then comes from God who places it into our hearts. But our second application question is, what about the quality of this joy? There are lots of things that offer joy. And depending on who you are, depending on your phase of life, like there are lots of different tributaries that promise joy, that promise pleasure. And some of those are big pleasures, Right? Like maybe a relationship or a job or retirement or children or whatever it might be, grandchildren. And there are little joys, little things that promise joy, right? Like chicken tikka marsala, spice level five, right? <laughs> Promises joy and satisfaction, right? But what about the quality of joy 
that David is referring to here? How does this joy compare? And again, David gives us the answer. Again, he gives it in verse 7. You have put, fourth word, more joy in my heart than they, all the others of the world, have when their grain and their wine abound. To say their grain and wine abound means they have received everything that in our world or in their world at the time would deem as successful. They've climbed the corporate ladder or they've achieved the dream home or they're, you know, they, they have the, the great vacation or they have the, the, the picture-perfect family. Whatever it is, is is the goal. Whatever it is that our world promises to be the good life, they've achieved it. And David says, in light of all of that, The Lord does not just give joy, but he gives a superior joy, more joy than anything else, more joy. In fact, the joy that God puts in the heart of a believer makes the greatest pleasures and successes of life look weak if we seek those apart from him. Like there's not, that's not to say there are not joys that come from grain abounding and wine abounding. God has created a world where even non-believers can experience excitement and wonder and happiness and have fun because of his common grace. And yet, all of these attempts at joy fail to deliver what we truly long for. It's only when we know and embrace the love of God for us and in us that we can enjoy the pleasures that God gives to us in their rightful place. And there is joy that comes from those things. But not when we go to those other things as the source, as the root of true lasting joy. It would be like, say you, you sign up for a life science class in college with a goal that at the end of the semester um, you'll be ready to do neurosurgery. That would be silly. We would laugh. Because that is not the purpose of life science course. It's not to prepare you. It won't deliver because that's not what it's designed to do. And likewise, we should not expect wine and grain abounding or a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or a college degree or different wardrobe or a different job or marriage or children or retirement or a best friend or a new car or a bigger house or a cruise or a dream vacation or anything else to give us that kind of deep-rooted, lasting joy. Like to approach any of those things looking for true, lasting, Davidic kind of joy that he's referring to is not only to commit idolatry, but it's essentially to then use for our own purposes that which God has designed to be good gifts to his children that comes to us as the fruit of a relationship with God, not the root. Grain and wine abounding are great things when they're simply joys to be received as good gifts from the loving Father who loves us as signs maybe of his love or as just common grace gifts that God gives to his created beings. And we can then enjoy those things, all of those things. We can enjoy children. 
We can enjoy vacations. We can enjoy a home. We can enjoy sports on TV. We can enjoy a good meal with friends. We can enjoy a day shopping. We can enjoy all of those things. We are free to enjoy them in the right sorts of ways because we're not going to those things to find the root of joy. We simply recognize they're the fruit of a good God. The root of lasting joy is God. It is the love of God that he gives to us and puts in us. Which means then it is possible to have that kind of lasting, durable joy regardless of the circumstances of life. Regardless of whether the trees of life are fruitful or whether they seem barren. And for some of you, you had reminders of this even recently because this past holiday season maybe perhaps was filled with reminders of broken relationships and dysfunction or sorrow or unmet expectations. And yet, friends, it is possible to have, even, to joy, to have joy even then. Emotions, experiences in life come and go. But it's by finding our joy in God's love for us that we can have durable, lasting satisfaction. I have a friend who wrote, in the incomparable, let me try that again. I have a friend who wrote, pause, incomparable joy in Christ crushes the idols of the heart. We are prone to wander And to seek joy in other things, status, popularity, grades, coffee, marriage, children. Anytime our heart says, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if, or if only I had. Those are clear indications that we are seeking joys in places that were not designed to give us the lasting satisfaction. Deep-seated, the root of joy. And yet the incomparable joy in Christ crushes the idols of the heart, which sounds a lot like you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. But you might be thinking, well, I had maybe a joy like this at one time, but over time my joy has slowly burned smaller and smaller, and now it feels all but gone. What now? Which brings us to our final question. How do we maintain joy? Like we know that joy comes from God. It's given to us by God. We know that joy is found in knowing whose we are. We know that the joy that Christ gives is superior than the joy we might find anywhere else. How do we maintain that kind of joy in a world filled with things that tempt us to find our deep-rooted joy in other places or in a world that likes to drain and kind of suck the joy out of our lives? Well, I think we find a clue, again, in verse 7 of Psalm 4, you have put more joy, where? Go ahead and say it out loud. In my heart. Where? Where? Waiting for someone to say, down in my heart. Where? (laughs) You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain or wine abound. And I think perhaps this is why we read so much in Scripture about guarding our heart. about guarding our heart with the word of God, by guarding our heart through the work of the spirit of God who seals us through the day of Christ Jesus. 
So why is it so important to guard our heart? It's because sin is an affront to God, yes. It's because God requires obedience, yes. It's because a heart that loves God will desire to please God, yes. But it's because the heart is the wellspring of not only life, but of our joy. Which is why after even David's sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, David prays, create in me a clean heart, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Unconfessed sin is a joy robber of the heart. Unforgiveness, bitterness, envy are joy robbers that attack the heart. Which is why we should regularly pray the words of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So choosing joy, choosing to live in the obedience that God calls us to, choosing to trust in him in ways that show he is more valuable to us than anything in the world, all work to produce the kind of joy that we're called to here, that God gives, that we're called to, to cultivate as we guard our heart, as we meditate on the Lord, as we seek to look more and more with the eyes of faith, as we live with gratitude to him. And joy comes when we abide in Christ. It comes when we know that God is for us. Therefore, whom or what shall we fear? Joy comes when we understand and believe and live in the truth that the light of God's face is upon us, that his spirit is in us, and that that is worth more than anything else in the world. And ultimately, our joy then comes from knowing that no matter how things may look or appear or even be, As a Christian, we have a loving Father who demonstrated his love for us in Christ. That he has promised not only to complete his work in us, and not only has he promised to bring us home, but he has promised to give us joy in the journey. Which is why throughout 2023 and perhaps even beyond, you're going to hear a lot about joy from time to time. In fact, I've tried to even incorporate that, incorporate that into times when I pray. Pray not only for the glory of God, but the increase of the joy of his people. That CCF might be a church that is defined not only for our, a love of God, and a love for truth, and a love for his word, and a love for missions, and a love for discipleship, and evangelism, and children, and teenagers, but a love of joy. Joy, deep-seated, deep-rooted, found in the loving God who cares for us and whose face shines upon his children.